And this morning I'd like to read from verse 13 down through verse 25. Isaiah 65, verses 13 down through verse 25. Let's stand together and hear the very word of God. Beginning with verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my eyes. Now verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children in trouble. For they shall be descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We exalt in these truths. Father, these things are brought to pass through Jesus, our Savior, the chief shepherd of the church. And Father, we pray this day your spirit to enable us to understand these words, some more difficult than others, but Father, that we would respond as your people, that we would better understand why it is that we are the rejoicing people of God. Oh God, we pray your spirit now with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Old Testament. I'm not sure that it should be. One of the things that we need to do when we come to the word of God is to get the thrust of it. Okay, maybe you don't get some of the tertiary details, but one of the things you do when you get into a difficult chapter like this is you look for the thrust of it, the, the, the point that God is driving home in his word for his people. Don't, don't get caught up in the leaves. If you miss the main message, that's a problem. You all agree with that? Let's not miss the main message. And that's one of my goals as I present the Word of God on a Sunday morning. I, I want to be sure I get the thrust of it. I'm not missing it. I'm not conveying something different 
to the rest of you. But let's begin with some guiding principles for the interpretation of this passage. This passage opens up the subject of the millennium. But I want to, I want to give you three guiding principles for interpretation first. The first of which is that I believe that all the promises are fulfilled and they are yes and amen in Jesus. So I believe that's an important interpretive principle to bring to these Old Testament promises that in Jesus there is a yes and amen to these, these promises. These promises are fulfilled and are being fulfilled right now. These, this passage itself does not refer to future glory and part of the reason for that is because there are sinners evidently living in the same context as the saint in this passage. But secondly, this passage also refers to Jerusalem, and I want you to pay attention to that throughout this chapter. And I think if you, if you can see that this applies to Jerusalem or the Holy Mountain, that's somewhat helpful. It doesn't really refer to the world, it refers to Jerusalem. So as you look at this eschatological passage, uh, pick it up. What is Jerusalem? Hebrews 12 definitively calls this the church. We have, we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the new Jerusalem. We have come to the mountain. We, we are there, not Mount Sinai. Two mountains contrasted in Hebrews chapter 12, right? We're not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the other mountain. So we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the church of the firstborn. Uh, we are here. We have arrived at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, the third thing you've got to remember when you look at these passages is that there is both the spiritual and the physical. Now, some are very focused in on the physical. They tend to be more carnal. They, 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 they see it primarily as physical. But then you have some who focus merely on the spiritual, as if somehow the spiritual has no connection with the physical. Now, we are not dualists here. That is, we don't separate out the physical blessings from the spiritual blessings. Uh, we try to resist the dualism. And so, while we see the spiritual as core, we acknowledge the physical as well. Now again, those who have denied the core, that's carnal. We're not to be that. God's people are not to focus on the carnal or the political or the, these sorts of things or even the physical and material. Uh, nevertheless, as we focus in upon the core as the spiritual, we understand that the spiritual is attended by some measure of physical blessing. So we believe in the both. Again, there are some who say this is all spiritual. Some say it's all physical or temporal. But what we see is that these things really present a both spiritual and physical blessing as promised in this prophetic passage. All right, let's review uh, briefly verses 1 through 12. We went through this last week. Remember, there were three groups spoken of, the first of which were the Gentiles. Verse 1, I was sought of those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. So we saw that the Gentiles were to receive the gospel, and that's uh, what Paul quoted in Romans chapter 10. But within the church, there were two other groups. The far-off people, the Gentiles, referred to in verse 1. But these two groups are the apostates and the real believers. So we have the both that are being dealt with uh, in the Old Testament church here in this passage. And these are defined as those who seek God, those who love God more than they love the world. And then there are those who do not seek God. They love the world more than they love God. They've forsaken God. They have forgotten the holy mountain. 
The church is of no real value to them. They do not hear when God speaks, and they do that which God does not delight in. Okay, so that's, that's the apostate group. Basically, these are those who attend the church, but they do not seek God. They do not delight in the church or appreciate His Word. But then there are those who do seek God and delight in the church and appreciate His Word. So these two distinct groups that are spoken of in this passage. Now, I believe this reality of these two groups is still very evident and has been throughout the New Testament church. As it was before Christ, so it is after Christ. Uh, There does appear to be a, a rather important rising apostate group that develops especially after the fourth lateran council in 1215 ad with the rise of the inquisitions the persecutions the rejections of the waldensians in the fourth lateran council where actually they did show up there Uh, so you have these uh, these two groups that seem to exist within the new testament church and even to this day however this uh, text is primarily addressing of course the old testament church that rejected christ Now, look at verses 13 through 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Now, this is the Lord's treatment of the two groups. You see there's a great contrast here. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. And wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. Now, as, as you read this, you sense the intense, extreme violence of these words that, that, that God will come and kill these people. See, that God is very intense in how he views those that have rejected him within the body of the church and those that have not. Jesus said he will come and kill the children of Jezebel over there at the church at Pergamos. So we see this in the New Testament as well as Old Testament. Sometimes people say the New Testament is a lot kinder and nicer God than you have in the Old Testament. God's reaction uh, to the apostate and those that are disturbing the church uh, in the New Testament really quite, quite intense. People did die at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 and so forth. So as you read these words, you find that God is very serious. God is serious. And I think that's really the lesson to draw from so much of of the Word of God is that God is a serious God. He's very serious about His judgments and serious about His mercy and His love for His people. So, So that's, I think, the most important takeaway is that there are these extreme contrasts Uh, between how God interacts with those that have received Him and received His Word and those that are repelled or repelling His Word. Now, the, 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 the prophecy here, I believe, this idea of coming and slaying these people, I believe that this at least was partially fulfilled in AD 70. And if you've read anything about AD 70, you know that this is one of the most nightmarish events in all of human history. Very nightmarish. Read, read uh, Josephus on what happened, and you know that this was a very intense reaction that God brought against his people in AD 70. God does not treat apostasy with kid gloves. This is one of the reasons why I'm a little apprehensive as to the intense, outrageous apostasy that we've seen in the West over the last 150 years or so. I, 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 I keep thinking, could it be something akin to AD 70 sometime in the near future? Uh, given that God reacted to the Jews in this way, now some might say, well, you know, the Gentiles are so much better than the Jews. 
but I, I, I don't agree with that line. I actually don't. I, I, re, I, re, I re, reject that, that somehow God is going to treat the Gentiles better than he treated the Jews. That's not what he says in Romans chapter 11. He says the Gentiles need to watch out as much as the Jews should have taken warning. And that's what we find in Romans uh, chapter 11 as, as Paul brought that message to the Gentile Romans. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, uh, these certainly are warnings uh, for our people today, but that's not the focus of the chapter. Let's get right to the theme of the chapter today. And the theme of this chapter is this, that God will bring joy into Jerusalem. Now, that did not happen in AD 70. God did not bring joy to Jerusalem in AD 70. You can just read the story of what happened. It was not a joyful time. This would be just the opposite. But he will bring joy to his church. He will bring joy to his people. So the, the theme is the joyful church. Behold, my servants, there it is in verse 14, shall rejoice. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy. And, and this is the object of the New Testament church, joy. The New Testament church is marked by joyfulness. This, this is what it is. This is a joy that, that reflects itself in singing. Okay, so we're going to get to that as we go. Now, the time frame of this passage, I, I believe, is revealed in verse 16. So when is this happening? When, when are we beginning to see this promise coming to pass? And I think verse 16 gives us something of a clue to that. Verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Now, this, again, is an indication that there will be worship going on in all the earth. There are those who will bless themselves through God, through the God of truth, in all the earth. So what what he's forecasting here, and he's already done this throughout the book of Isaiah, God is planning to move on from the Jews, he, he has a bigger kingdom. And he's not going to waste his time with the apostates anymore. As Paul moved on to the Gentiles, and, and this began in AD 33, so God moved on to the Gentiles. And now, of course, we are moving on to the uttermost parts of the earth, ourselves, in this generation. Whether or not the nations are on board, whether or not the apostates are on board, lead, follow, or get out of the way, God is establishing his church and his kingdom around the world. Hallelujah. Amen. So there may be a drag on the system on the part of some Jews or some apostate Gentiles, but forget them. God's moving on. God has a a gospel message that's going around the world, and there are people receiving the gospel message with joy all over the world today, even to this day. So, So this is what is happening post AD 33 Worship is blessing and swearing, acknowledging that all judgment, all blessing belong to God. We come into worship, we say, God, you are the source of all blessing, you are the judge of all the earth. We submit ourselves to you and we are here to receive your blessing. That, that is effectively what is being said in verse 16, and this is spreading around the world. This vision is increasing to every tribe and nation around the world. All right, now, verses 17 to 25 
is a presentation of the vision of God for his people. Now, what is the vision? What is the grand plan that God has for his people in all the earth? And this is it. It's a new creation. So six elements. Six elements. Children, the first one of the church will be a new creation. The first is a new creation. God is bringing about a new creation in all the earth. A new man, a new reality. It's the creation of a new Jerusalem as a source of all joy. Look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forevermore in what I create. So what does he create? That's the question here. Now again, this is, this is where all the controversy has come into pass right here. All-mail, pre-mail, post-mail. This is, this is the hinge point of all the all-mail, uh, pre-mail, post-mail arguments in the book of Isaiah. This is it. So everybody ready? Ready for the controversy? God is going to create something. It's a new heavens and new earth. But what does he create? What is it? What is the new creation? Behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. That's it. And I could just hear every one of you saying right now, hallelujah. Amen. May the spiritual mind enfold around this passage this morning and get the thrust of the message. This is it. You say, this is it? Yeah, this is it. God is creating Jerusalem as a rejoicing, or people of joy. I rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. In who? In Jerusalem, in the church, nor the voice of crying. Now, see, here's part of the problem is that we don't properly understand the radical new creation that's already occurred in the church. And, and this, this is why the passage is all, often interpreted in a carnal way. Paul brings it out in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And, and read, I'm going to read that literally here. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have already passed away. Behold, all the new things have come into being. All the new things have come into being. It's a perfect tense. So then back up to chapter 4. And what we find is Paul is looking at his aging body, his tortured body, 160 stripes up and down his back, plowed like furrows. So Paul is referring in the chapter, to, to himself. But then he says, in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So brothers and sisters, the, the new creation in Christ Jesus is as radical as the creation of another universe. The new creation in Christ is as radical as the creation of of another universe. Now, unbelievers scoff at all this. What they say is this. is What unbelievers say. What? A spiritual resurrection, a new creature in Christ? That's ridiculous. I mean, this is Joey, the guy I work with on the other side of the cubicle. This, this is not a new creation. This is not a new reality created by Almighty God. It's just Joey. He's kind of a geeky guy who doesn't fornicate and get drunk on the weekends and get lost in the escape world of games like the rest of us, but just Joey. What's the big deal? That's what the unbelieving world says. They can't see the kingdom of God. They can't see it. It's just Joey. 
A new universe as radical as the recreation of an entire universe with all of the galaxies? You've got to be kidding me. No way. The unbelieving world cannot handle this. They scoff at it. But why are they so blind to the reality? Why does this message make zero sense to them, to the unbelieving mind who hears it? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, early verses, same chapter, what does he say? Why is it that they can't see it? They don't see the things God sees. They don't appreciate the things that God appreciates. They're unaware of all that is glorious. Why? Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. That's their blindness. The devils have blinded them. They can't see that Joey is a new creation, and he's entered into the millennium, and he's living the millennium. They they can't believe it. They're carnally minded. So first, children, the church will be a new creation. Secondly, the church will be joyful. And this is the major point, all the way back to verse 14, into this passage. This is the thing. This is the thing God is creating. It's the rejoicing church. This is it. This is the creation. This is the the most stupendous and amazing creation of God. He has done all of the history of the universe. This is it. The church is primarily a place of joy where people rejoice and God rejoices over his people. That's it. Be glad and rejoice forever. And what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. Her people as a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, do I believe this is an, an increasing reality that occurs eschatologically perhaps over the ages but also in in your own life in my life yes but this this is God's vision this is it be impressed brothers and sisters as much as you can see the glory of God as much as you can appreciate the message of God and the vision of God and the mission of God just just let your hearts receive it this morning that this is God's desire and God's plan is his beautiful plan and purpose for the church of Jesus Christ around the world and I've witnessed it myself and it's amazing So why, why is the church such a rejoicing church? Well, it's because we're the redeemed, because we've been bought from the slavery of Satan, because, because we know the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts. We, we're the most loved people in the world. God rejoices over us. We rejoice in Him. It's, it's, it may be a small church. Again, I, I, I don't want to put numbers to it. Every tribe and nation, yes. Hundreds of billions, Yes. But in local congregations, maybe only four or five voices coming together, one heart, one voice, maybe 400 to 500, either way. But the real church is defined by rejoicing. Honest to goodness rejoicing in God and what he has done in his love for us. This is the real church. This is the real deal. And this is the essential element and the major theme of the millennium. This is it. So what's the vision for the church? Paul brings it out in the New Testament. We go through the book of Romans, finally come to the final conclusion in Romans 15. Why are we gathered together? What is this all about? Why all the plans of God throughout 
the eons of, of history and throughout the past eternity. What, what is all of this? What does God intend for all of this? Paul concludes Romans in uh, chapter 15 that you may be of one mind, one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore receive one another just as Christ has received us to the glory of God that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it's written. For this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice O Gentiles with his people. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Rejoicing. It's a theme of the New Testament. Let me get it throughout the New Testament, and it's the prophecies. You don't get it as much in Deuteronomy. There's a little bit. There's a command to rejoice. Was it once a year? The rejoicing tithe, right? You shall rejoice before me once a year. They scheduled it out, but you don't have to schedule it out as much anymore because it's just, this is God's vision for the New Testament church. It's to rejoice evermore. It's to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And this, this is the theme of Philippians, the theme of Romans, the theme of the New Testament, the theme of Peter in 1 Peter 1. Rejoicing is the major theme in the New Testament. This is the vision of God for the New Testament church. This is it, brothers and sisters. We found it. This is why we're here. This is why we're gathered. Now, I mentioned a little bit about emotion in my letter to uh, the congregation this week. And again, it's not an empty emotion. What, what, what is this thing? Well, it's a faith and a confidence in the proposition that Christ is risen and we've already been resurrected. It just that, that settles in. We realize who we are. We realize we are living the new life. We are already receiving the everlasting life we were promised in, in John 3, 16 and 17. The rejoicing doesn't depend on external factors. Whether it be, you know, things are going well, got good cheerleaders up front, good worship band, external factors, or maybe... The context is prison, or maybe we're in the fire or something. It doesn't matter. Somebody may be burning down our building. We're still rushing out in the parking lot to, to worship. Maybe they're burning the pastors at the stake. Some of us have been beaten senseless by the devil, cast down but not destroyed last week, as Paul says in chapter 4. But we're oblivious to all of that. doesn't make any difference to us. First Peter chapter 1, right? The rejoicing just continues, and it continues. And it's a corporate activity where three or four are gathered or two or three are gathered, where the truth is settled in, where the convictions of what God has done for me and for us, and we get it, and we're, we're coming together, and, and we begin, voices begin to blend, and, and the, the excitement tends to be um, a, a bit contagious. We, we're getting it from each other too, but it's just, that's what a rejoicing church is. And the world comes in and says, this is the most joyful church I've ever been in. This, this, is, this is so different than the public schools or other gatherings. Rejoicing. A corporate activity. Again, not, not a single voice, but, but blending. The blending. As Paul says here in chapter 15, one heart, one voice joining in the glorifying, the praising, the worship, and the rejoicing before God. We've all come together. We realized, like Lazarus, we've all been raised from the dead. Imagine, you know, 17 Lazaruses coming into one room going, you, you too? Yeah, you too? You too? Once I was blind, now I can see? Club? Once I was dead, now I'm alive? Club? You get me? I mean, we're kind of the club. We're all coming together. Now it's one heart, one voice, alive, enjoying everlasting life here and now and then forever and ever. 
That's what it is. That's what it is. It's natural, spontaneous. It comes with the realization that we, we, we won. God, God won this through Jesus Christ. You don't have to force it. You don't come to your children, you know, going camping. Say, okay, children, I have something very, very important to tell you. It's going to be really exciting, and I want you to rejoice. Now, if you don't rejoice, I'm going to spank you. Okay, you don't do that with your kids, do you? You go, kids, we're going camping this weekend. And suddenly, one heart, one voice. The kids go, we're going camping this weekend, right? One heart, one voice. It's not like, if you don't rejoice, I'm coming after you. No, no, no. It's, it's natural. It flows. It's spontaneous. It's the reception of the message. It believe, we believe that, that dad exists. We believe that God tells the truth, that dad tells the truth. We believe we really are going camping. We believe a lot of things about what dad has just communicated to us. And so it is in the church. We believe this stuff. Amen? We believe in the good news. Amen? We've received it. We go, yes, it's true. For me, my sins are forgiven. God has given me eternal life. I have power over the devil now. I can overcome my sin by the power of the risen Christ now. Amen. High five, everybody. Let's rejoice. That's it. Do you experience that on a Sunday morning? Are you getting it? Is it sinking in? That's the church. That's the real church. The good news has got to overwhelm the bad news, too. Because we're surrounded by bad news. I get it. But the light and the hope of the gospel overcomes the darkness out there. Man, the bad news is all around us. When somebody mentions to you, hey, I've got some bad news. You say, yeah, but Christ is risen and I am too. I got some more bad news. Yeah, but I've got even better bad news. My good news, or good news, my good news beats your bad news. Every day, Christ is risen and I am too. But I've got even more bad news. Christ is risen, and I am too. But I've got even more bad news. Christ is risen, and I am too. Okay? Try to beat that. You're going to have to bring that faith, the thing you believe, to bear against the bad news that is all around you. There's all the wet blankets. I get it. Family members, sometimes even church members can be a wet blanket. They're not rejoicing. They're, they're giving you even more not to rejoice about. They refuse to rejoice. It's a wet blanket. And the devil throws the wet blanket over everybody. Yes, he does that kind of stuff. But tough. Faith breaks through and says, uh-uh, Christ is risen and we are too. And nothing should detract our rejoicing. Nothing detract our rejoicing. Nothing gets in the way of our rejoicing. Nothing will quench our joy. No, no. No criticisms, censorious attitudes, Saul's daughters, demonic divisiveness, straining at gnats and swallowing camels, whatever it is, fraudulent look-alike kind of joys. None of that's going to quench our joy. No, 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 no. No demon from hell is going to divert our attention from this. No entertainment Endless diversions developed in the pit of hell to divert us from the main news, the good news, the great news, the stupendous news, the out-of-the-world news. Nothing, nothing, nothing will get in the way. No diversions. Casting out all the movies and the, the fake little happy, clappy pop music stuff that is supposed to get us all emotional, but there's no content to it. There's no resurrection. There's no life. Throwing it all away doesn't help me. I am rejoicing over Jesus Christ 
my Savior, my Lord, resurrected, King of kings, Lord of lords, and I'm walking with him. And all the pseudo-gospels, the me-centered messages, you know, the positive thinking about man's sinful nature, what man can do and will do for himself, man's abilities, the powerlessness of man-oriented revivals and, and messages. None of that should quench the good news for us. We throw out all the pseudo-junk and demand only the good news of God's gospel, God's work, Christ's accomplishments on the cross and his resurrection. That's, that's all we need. That's all we need. We're not going to let anything get in the way of the thing that brings us the most joy. Amen, somebody? And believe me, the devil works overtime quenching authentic joy and the authentic message of this overwhelmingly awe-inspiring good news that God himself has brought to us. All these distractions and diversions, no, we refuse to let any of this get in the way. No way. No way, no way, no way. We are gathered here to declare it again and again. We just need multiple voices. Two or three are gathered. Twenty or thirty are gathered who believe it, could say amen to it, and rejoice in it. That's all we need. That's all we need. And we have a church. And we're in the millennium. Okay, thirdly, Children, the church will be strong. The church will be strong. The new church will be a place of vitality and spiritual strength. Look at verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Again, speaking of the church. We're talking about the new Jerusalem here. We're talking about the Holy Hill. So let's not get off the topic. Stay on the topic. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old. But the sinner, being one hundred years old, shall be accursed. By the way, under five, infant mortality has dropped from five and ten, fifty percent to two percent between 1800 and 1960. And I believe this has something to do with the, the, the rise of Christian influence in the Christian church around the world. Not just in America, but around the world. Up until 1960, we had a tremendous improvement of infant mortality. Imagine half your children be dead by five years of age. That was the average in 1800. We read about increased Mather and some of these guys. Some of them lost almost all their children. I think increased Mather had three that survived out of 11. Infant mortality was 50% of the children in this congregation dead. Dead by five years of age. Now it's two in a hundred. That's pretty phenomenal. But there's also spiritual vitality. Here's John Calvin. I, I rely on John Calvin, Matthew, Henry. I think the standard commentaries in these verses are generally sufficient. I would add a few things to what they said, but I, I actually think John Calvin, Matthew, Henry, not too far off. Calvin says, whether they are children or old men, they shall arrive at mature age so as to be always vigorous like persons in the prime of life. In short, they will always be healthful and robust, for it is on account of our sins that we grow old and lose our strength. As Moses said, all our days pass away when thou art angry. We close our years quicker than a word. The days of our years in which we live are 70 years, or at the utmost 80. What goes beyond this in the strongest is toil and vexation. Our strength passes swiftly and we fly away. 
But Calvin says that's reversed in Jesus. In Matthew Henry, as he speaks on the hundred-year-old sinner that's doubly cursed, the man who lives for a hundred years, who does not know God, and this again is what I, what I believe this applies to the present day. It doesn't apply to future glory. So, so therefore, what is this guy? Well, Matthew Henry, unbelievers shall be unsatisfied and unhappy in life, though it be ever so long. There's this horrible bitterness that seems to attend the life of unbelievers. They grow older, 80, 90, 100. It's just life gets even more bitter for them. They're even more disappointed with life. Their relationships marked with controversy and distance and ruin. And we see this with, with so many of the unbelieving world. My wife worked with so many of the older folks when she was in a home health visitation. And she, um, she says, yeah, this is the kind of thing that happens. You know immediately who the Christians are. The Christians are those that are bright and happy and, and they're expectant, anticipating good things. They're optimistic, they're hopeful. And who are the unbelievers? They're just the older they get, the more bitter they get. And this is precisely what the Word is telling us here. But it's just the opposite with believers. Though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This is what happens in the church. And fourthly, there's a measure of prosperity that accompanies the Christian church, verses 21 to 23. A measure of prosperity. Children, that word is prosperous. The church will be prosperous. It's, it's a word used for rich. That is, God out, uh, pours out his blessings, I believe, both spiritual and physical to his church in general. They shall build houses, inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, eat their fruit. They shall not build another habit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of the tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall enjoy the work of their hands, and, and so forth. Just a number of examples of this. But if you go to just before the apostasy of the United States in 1960, which is pretty much the end of the, the Western influence of Christianity, it's sweeping into Europe for about 1,500 years, so you come to 1960. In 1960, I see as the tipping point, but just before the tipping point, the GDP per capita of Protestant nations... That is, the average median income for the average person, GDP per capita of Protestant nations, was $1,800. And the United States was at the top at $3,067. The U.S. was the most prosperous nation on earth in 1960 as GDP per capita. Okay, at $3,000. The GDP per capita of Catholic nations was only $600. The GDP per capita of Islamic nations was $198. Okay, we're doing $3,000. The Islamic nations are doing 198. The median income of Hindu nations was $17 per year. $17. The GDP per capita of African nations was 178. And the GDP per capita of communist China was $76 in 1960. So America was five times more materially blessed than Catholic nations. Five times. 500% more. Five times uh, living a more prosperous life than those in Catholic nations. America is 15 times more blessed than Islamic nations and 100 times more blessed than Hindu nations, 40 times more blessed than the communist nations, and America was 17 times more blessed than African nations. Now, I just simply say that God has blessed America. Blessed America, why? Because, well, for one thing, the American church continued to be prosperous and sent more missionaries around the world than any other sending country. Now, in the 1800s, it was Scotland and England. But you get into the 20th century, and about 80 to 90% of the missionary funding came from where? The United States. 
America. America kept the gospel going around the world through the 20th century. It was America. Now, Korea has jumped in, Brazil, and a few other nations, thankfully, to take the, the, the place of the West. Now, all of this, of course, happens before the great apostasy kicked in around 1960. Now that has changed. Islamic nations are now leading the world on GDP per capita. You need to understand, Islamic nations have stepped in, and now they're filling the void. They're actually receiving so much of the, uh, the prosperity that, uh, that America and other Christian nations brought to the world. Um, and probably Rockefeller is their favorite guy, I'm guessing. Probably Rockefeller is their very favorite guy in uh, Islamic nations today. I'm guessing Rockefeller, you know, that, that Baptist Sunday school teacher that uh, did as much as he did in the 1800s. Uh, but, but then that led, that prosperity led to a lot of apostasy. That's where we are today in America. And uh, now God is taking us away. God's taking us out. But, uh, but nevertheless, what we do see is something of a material prosperity. And, and the, the, the data brings that out in no uncertain terms. There's no way you can argue with it. That's just the way it works. Let's move on to number five. There comes also a generational faithfulness as a fruit of this Christian church. There's a sustainability that happens from generation to generation. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. But they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And when you read the history, you find for a thousand years in Europe, you have 20, 30, 40 generations of Christians born into the church until you get to the Renaissance in Italy, until you get to the 1300s, and then the 1500s, 1600s, the Enlightenment in Europe, and modernity throughout the West in the 1800s, 1900s, corrupted the world. In these days, you might get two to three generations, not so much 20, 30, 40 generations, some cases, only one generation or half a generation of continuity. But that's largely due to the revivalistic culture in the church and the death of covenant theology. I think that contributes something to it. How is it that they did pretty well for a thousand years? And then we get to modernity. Then you get to the institutionalization of education and all the rest and the, the secularization of all of our institutions and all of that. And then the breakdown of covenant theology and a breakdown of, of the church itself. And then we begin to see what we've seen uh, more, more recently. The point is that as the New Testament church exploded upon the world in the first century, brothers and sisters, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit came in a Pentecostal deluge that resulted in parents who were filled with the Holy Spirit they raised their children the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their homes were filled increasingly with love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And the Holy Spirit outpouring began to reach out into the children and then the grandchildren and then the great-grandchildren. And that's how the church spread throughout Europe for a thousand years. And I believe it can happen today, anywhere in the world today. Okay, and then number six. The church will be a safe children, the church will be safe, a safe place in all the holy mountain. Calvin speaks of this in terms of a spiritual application. He says, beyond all controversy, the prophet speaks allegorically of bloody and violent men whose cruel and savage nature shall be subdued when they submit to the yoke of Christ. So the church is safe in the holy mountain. As you read this verse, what do you find? You find that the, the lion is laying down with the lamb. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. 
and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Again, the focus is in the church, the holy mountain. This is where it's happening, in the mountain. The holy mountain of the church of Jesus Christ. And so there's a safety about the church. that you say, well, not always safe. That's true. Now, I believe that, again, this extends something to a physical nature as well as a spiritual nature. I believe there is a physical nature to this. About 10 years ago, I interviewed a brother who was saved out of Islam, Pastor Majid El-Shafi, and he told about his experience in an Islamic prison. I thought this was really interesting. I want to bring this to bear because I think it has immediate application uh, here. He was converted to Christianity. He founded a pro-Christian legal aid organization with thousands of members among Christian churches throughout Egypt. He was arrested by the Muslims. They weren't happy about his legal associations, etc. So he was, he was remanded to torture. Now listen to this. On his first day in prison, his hair was shaved. His head was put alternately into freezing cold and boiling hot water for a minute each. After that, they took me to my cell... And then they told me, you tell us the name of your friends. He responded, I haven't taken a shower for a long time. I enjoyed the cold and the hot water. On the second day, the jailers hung Majid upside down, burned his body with cigarettes, and slashed him with knives. Then it was on the third day when the jailers let loose three snarling dogs in his dark cell. But the three dogs just sat around him, refusing to attack him. He told me the dogs were very kind to him. They were licking on him. The guards then brought another set of dogs, these snarling, evil, you know, wicked dogs. They brought these in, just as they had the, second, the first set, and Majid said they didn't do anything. They just did the very same thing the first set of dogs did. And uh, he, he said the guards were talking about it as a miracle. Now, I just bring this as an example. I don't believe it's the only example. But the church becomes a safe place. The church becomes a safe place. Well, let's conclude the message. What we're saying is that glory begins here. The gloriousness of the new life, the new creation that Jesus brings, begins right here. We have not reached the final consummation, but we can see it from the eye, but with the eye from here. Now, what's extraordinary, and if you do the comparison, I did this, and I'm sure some of you have, Isaiah 65 seems like almost an exact comparison or parallel to Revelation 22. And so let me read Revelation 22 to you. Now, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Now that sounds a lot like Isaiah 65, doesn't it? Except for a single difference. If you look at verse 8, we find something different. The cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Everybody not written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the fire. And so this is, this is not so in Isaiah 65. There's no reference to that in Isaiah 65. But this is the end of all sin and evil in the world. 
And the nations, later on we discover, the nations of the universe will walk in and out of the city, but it also says nothing will enter into it that defiles anymore. Now, what we get from that in glory, we have the, the city and then we have the nations. There's a distinction between, at least as far as I can tell, in glory, there's a distinction between the, 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 the fellowship of God's people with Jesus and the nations. They come in and out of the city, and so there's a distinction there. But the nations that come in and out of the city and the kings, nothing will enter into it that defiles anymore. So that's the difference. That is the difference between Isaiah 65 and, uh, and Revelation 21 and 22. So, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, what is it that defines us more than anything else? We are the joyful church. This is the greatest taste of heaven right here. We, we are the ones that are shouting as those who divide the spoil. We rejoice in God's works, making dead men alive all around us. Graveyards bursting with people walking out of the graves. Redemption. We are rejoicing in Jesus, 1 Peter 1.8, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I, I don't believe that that applies to what will happen later. He says, in the present, you are rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible, that we cannot define. It's, it's a joy that is so wonderful, so out of this world, so unlike the world around us, that there are no words in Webster's Dictionary to define it. It's joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the sort of thing that is expected in the church, in the present age, in the present tense, as given to us here in this passage. A joy inexpressible and full of glory, even in the midst of trial. So, does your heart leap for joy when you just think of Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. He is risen. He is ruling. He is conquering the nations. He's bringing a reign of perfect righteousness and peace to the earth. He is the essence of everything that's compassionate and gracious. He is the perfection of all glory. Think of Jesus. That's what Peter says here. You think of him. You rejoice in him. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And you rejoice in his redemption. Isaiah 9, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. Men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder. The rod of his oppressors in the day of Midian for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire for unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. Jesus won against the devil and against sin and against death. Hallelujah. I couldn't be happier. I'm rejoicing today because of this. So, brothers and sisters, if you say, well, but I just wanted the millennium to be such that, I don't know, Kevin Swantz would be elected as President of the United States instead of that joker. That was my conception of the millennium. Not nearly enough. 
Not core enough. Not to the heart of it. Not to the soul of it. You haven't got it yet. This is the vision of God. May we be the rejoicing church. That's what matters more than anything else to God is His church and the rejoicing of His people coming together who've been redeemed by the blood of His Son. Gain a spiritual heart and soul and life. Get to the spiritual nature of it. Yes, it plays out in all the other ways. We've seen over 2,000 years amazing things, yes. But get to the soul of it. If you've missed the soul of it and you're looking forward to some future millennium golden age, forget that. You've missed the word of God and you do not share the vision of God for this body. So let us rejoice to the bridegroom running out of his chamber, rejoicing with the wild anticipation and expectation of God's goodness as contained in his glorious promises. And, and joy is contagious. What does it say in the passage? God rejoices in us. God rejoices over us. God sings over us. Therefore, you sing. Therefore, you rejoice. That's it. God loving you. God rejoicing over you. Respond in joy. Respond in praise. Be joyful. God is joyful. It's contagious. Jesus looked forward to his relationship with us, endured the pain, despised the shame. Why? Because of his joyful expectation of being with us. And Jesus will receive us with his exceeding joy. These are the things that matter most. Are you getting it? Are the chills running up and down your back right now? Are you receiving this message or your heart just hardened to it? Or is your heart opening up to it? And you're realizing the love of God and the rejoicing of God over me. And hopefully the spirit will not be quenched in two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours, but that this joy will define you and define me and define this church so that over the next 20 years of this church, people will look into this building and say, I've never seen such a joyful church. This must be the millennium. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, do a miracle in us. God, bring about your great redemption. Help us to know it. Help us to realize it. God, to know your love, to know your rejoicing over us and that we would rejoice over you and rejoice in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Father, there's a sense in which we feel like we scraped the surface of this a little bit, but we ask for more of it, more millennium, more joy, more of the core matter. Because this is what matters to you. Oh God, please, may this sink in. Right now, may there be nothing that gets in the way of our joy in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Let's come to the Lord's table now to remember God's love 
for us. God loves you. God loves you. God cares about you. God delights in you. God has expressed concern for you. God has committed himself to you. It's a commitment to commit the blood of your son to somebody else. And he's committed the blood of his only begotten son to us. Is that a commitment? I've never committed my own blood to anybody else. God committed his son to us. And and this, I believe, is, is the beginning of it all, to know that God rejoices over us. And we sing because God sings. We rejoice because God rejoices. It's the contagious character of the rejoicing, the shouting. You think God shouts over us? The Bible says he shouts over us. Doesn't, where is it? You're my concordance. Yes, is it, oh, it's my, the passage right in front of me. It's right here. You're right. Okay. God shouts over us. God rejoices in us. He sings over us. So now, there's shouting going on. Well, you need to ask yourself, what's all the shouting going on? What is this? It's God shouting. He must be excited about something. Well, then let's shout it as well. That's the logic. Okay? If God is shouting and God is singing, will you sing? Will you shout? Well, that's what Zephaniah 3 is all about. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is on your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And again, this is exactly what Jesus is thinking on the cross. The major insight we get in Hebrews 12 as to what Jesus is thinking on the cross is that that he had a joy that was set before him and therefore endured the cross and despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the prince in the story, let me ask you this question. The prince in the story, was there more joy in killing the dragon or saving the princess? What do you think? For the prince in the story, was there more joy for the prince in killing the dragon or saving the princess? I think there was a lot of joy in smashing the dragon's head inside out. I believe so. And again, the expression of joy is triumph in the Bible. It's it's the joy that we express when we know the devil has been smashed, but also that the bride of Christ has been rescued. And so I think you're right, sister. I think it is. The, The rejoicing over the bride, more than the blood of the dragon on his tennis shoe. I I think it was that he redeemed his people and his people were precious to him. We're referred to as the bride of Christ in the word, aren't we? So Jesus rode into battle and he saved us. And now it's time for us to what? To rejoice before him. 
and to divide, rejoice as the one who divides the spoil. And to celebrate, to shout, and to rejoice. And so this is a, a meal of rejoicing in remembering what Jesus did for us by his death and resurrection. But it's also a time of communion with the Savior who rejoices over us, who is so looking forward to this event. He was so looking forward to having communion. Yes, the final bridal meal, yes. But having communion with his people, he so was looking forward to it, he despised the shame. He received the torture. And he died on the cross for you and me because he loves you. And he wanted to be with you. And he wanted to commune with you. And this, of course, is a fellowship in which we participate with him and take part in this meal that is the Bible speaks of as communing with Jesus in his body and his blood which is administered spiritually to to us as we take it so brothers and sisters that's the story that's the story let's play a part of that let's commune let's commune now Let's take this bread and cup and remember our Jesus. Father God, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who took down the big enemy for us but did it for love, redeemed us from the power of the enemy, but he did it for love, overcame the wrath and the judgment condemnation due to us for our sins, but did it for love that he would Rejoice over us, that you would love us now and forever. Father, that we would respond, just respond, and love him, and rejoice in him, and maybe even join into the shouting as well. In Jesus' name, amen.